again, adversity and crisis does not uh, does not determine who we are. It reveals who we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we're in crisis. We're in crisis, and I think maybe for the first time, I think we all can agree that we're in crisis. I think we can all agree that the world is on fire. And so post-racialism, as I make the case in the book, is one of those ideologies that it's it's so easy for Christians to begin to think that it is a Christian ideology, that, that Christian congregations should be the champions and the models of post-racialism and racial colorblindness, when in the end, they're just buying into one of the most sophisticated distractions of Christian vocation. Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm your host, Sushama Austin Connor. I'm Abigail Visco Russert, a co host and co producer. Today, you'll hear the story of Pastor John Robinson at St. Peter's AME in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You'll hear from Dr. Montague Williams, a professor of practical theology at Point Loma Nazarene University, who will help us wrestle with the topics of post-racialism and colorblindness. And you'll hear from Neato Abrahams, who recently graduated from seminary and who is now entering a season of ministry in a pandemic. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer. Abigail and Sushama, talk to us about why these three voices. What are they bringing to our conversation about being church in the time of COVID? I think what was really important um, and valuable about these three interviews that I don't know that we even realized uh, in the moment of pursuing them as interviewees is that they these are three Black men um, mm-hmm. who are talking into this moment, speaking into this moment, um, and how important that is, and how important it is um, to have the various voices in different um, spectrums, academic, um, in you know, on the ground in Minneapolis, to have those voices speaking to us, a young leader as Nia's. I think that what struck me was how important it is to have these three uh, to talk about this, the current situation. One of the things that struck me is when we got to the, our favorite question about protest mm-hmm. um, and is protest worship, both Pastor Robinson and me utilized scripture from the Old Testament mm-hmm. to talk about their answer. And he actually ran and grabbed his Bible <laughs> and, uh, and, and looked up a reference. And it just, you know, it strikes me that in all three of these interviews, really there's, and, and really for this podcast too, the tie that binds is this, the arc of the Christian story being the thing that calls us to our sense of identity and purpose. Um, yeah, that's really stuck with me. Uh, I am John Robinson. I am the senior pastor of St. Peter's African Methodist Episcopal Church uh, in South Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, uh, about five blocks from where George Floyd was publicly lynched on Memorial Day. If you could just kind of walk us through getting more like granular, the day that this happens to George Floyd, what is going on in Minneapolis? We are in a, a 
this moment of COVID. We, um, I, I have read that George Floyd had recently lost a job. You please correct me if my my facts are off, but had recently lost a job due to COVID or had was out of work. What was going on for Minneapolis and for you that day and for the the people within that five block radius? What was happening? Yeah, so for me personally, I was actually in Chicago on Memorial Day when it happened. Uh, and when I didn't find out about it until the next morning, it was uh, Tuesday morning, one of my members sent me the link um, and I, I watched in horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I knew I knew when I clicked on it what, what, what was going to, but I, I knew what I was going to see. And I couldn't, I couldn't look away. Uh, but I sat there horrified, and so I was in Chicago, um, and I'm and, and I'm realizing that not only is this tragedy unfolding before my eyes, but it's unfolding five blocks from the church I pastor. Mm-hmm. So my first instinct as a pastor was just to begin calling my my people, uh, calling my members to make sure that they were okay. Um you know, to the extent possible in a situation like this. Uh, it was a couple of days later, I made my way back to Minneapolis uh, to stand with the community and to provide a physical presence. I, I, I'm a strong believer, uh, generally speaking, in the ministry of presence. Uh, as a pastor and as a, a child of God, I think there's power in our presence, which has been challenged tremendously in a viral global pandemic. Uh, in addition to simultaneously mourning and weeping for George, uh, was to reach out and and, and make contact, uh, even virtually, with with members of my congregation and members of the community because um, that is my role as a pastor. Yeah. So again, I, because I was a youth pastor for thirteen years, uh, my my heart and my passion is, is youth. What we, I got on the phone with a couple of folks, um, one of my members. Um, so there, I'll tell two stories here. One of my members um, was in contact with the family of the young lady who filmed George's murder. Wow. Wow. Uh, she was, she had gone to the store because her nine-year-old cousin had been pestering folks in the house for, you know, an hour or so to get somebody to go with her to the store so she could get some gum or some candy or something like that. Um, and so the, the 17-year-old who, who ended up filming it relented and said, okay, I'll go with you. And so she takes her nine-year-old cousin, and as she comes out, um, the chaos surrounding George Floyd and his interaction with Minneapolis police ensued. Uh, So she had the presence of mind to pull out her cell phone and film the entirety of the exchange in the last essentially nine to 10 minutes of George Floyd's life. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, and I had that conversation with my member and she was in crisis herself because she's got daughters of her own uh, but these, she, the family reached out to her somehow in some way they got connected. And so she was calling me to provide pastoral care for her. 
And as she's sharing these stories with me, I began to think about other young people and what, how they might be processing this and what, what's going on in their minds and in their spirits as they're dealing with this in real time. And so we convened a virtual session of about 15 to 20 youth aging from 12 to 22, 23, simply as a place so we can hold space for them to process what they were going through. So this was on the video basically emerged on Tuesdays. Well, that's when I saw it uh, on Thursday. So two days later, uh, we convened this space for youth and, you know, they were, they were fret. The, the wound was fresh. The grief was fresh. The trauma was fresh. Uh, but in the midst of their trauma, in the midst of their lamenting, as youth typically do, they expressed and articulated a an energized hope that I was not expecting that soon. That's when I thought of Dr. Williams. Yeah, okay. Well, my name is Montague Williams, and I live in San Diego. I am a professor at Point Loma Nazarene University in the School of Theology and Christian Ministry. And uh, you know, my title is Associate Professor of Church, Culture, and society. Uh, my most recent project is a forthcoming book called Church in Color. So basically, in your book, you take readers on a journey into three congregations who identify as multi-ethnic, and specifically their ministry with young people. You discern patterns of colorblindness. You talk about the influence of post-racialism. And I'd love for you to define those two terms for us, colorblindness and post-racialism, and maybe talk about how they show up in your experience. Well, colorblindness and post-racialism are two ideas uh, that go together. In a lot of places, uh, it's been common to basically conflate the two terms that uh, colorblindness, or more specifically, racial colorblindness, um, to talk about racial colorblindness as basically uh, a form of post-racialism, which the two go together. In the book, I make the case that uh, post-racialism is a sort of tradition that uh, that positions racial colorblindness as a virtue. Now, I don't I don't argue that racial colorblindness is virtuous in many ways. Actually, I talk about it as an anti-virtue mm. uh, and that the tradition of post-racialism is a tradition that really shapes Christians away from uh, what it truly means to follow the way of Jesus. But post-racialism is uh, an attempt to see and operate in the world as if race does not matter. Now, you may remember that around 2008, a lot of folks were wondering if we are in a post-racial society, and that idea was rejected pretty quickly. But, you know, even after it was rejected, there has been this lingering sense that's been picked up by some that perhaps it is like while while society may not be post-racial, perhaps it's best for some groups to operate as if they are post-racial as a way of being different than the world, I guess you can say. And I have found that there are some churches that have really bought into this. 
and really try to structure their church life in a way that, uh, that assumes race should not and does not matter. And because of that, colorblindness, racial colorblindness, the idea of seeing situations, seeing each other, making decisions, all of that, uh, all of that gets, uh, all of that work gets repositioned as if the way to do it well is to assume that race has no, no place in the conversation. Is that a helpful? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I'd love just as by way of a follow-up too. talk, can you talk a little bit about finding this both and witnessing this both within multi-ethnic church communities and congregations and also outside of those spaces? Okay. So in the book, I, I highlight three congregations throughout my research. Uh, I found that it's best to take a look at how this plays out in three separate congregations as a way of seeing similarities and differences. So each congregation has a different, uh, I guess you can say, uh, racial and uh, ethnic uh, demographic makeup. And what it shows is that even, you know, people will say like, okay, yeah, a predominantly white congregation might be more uh, tempted to make use of post-racialism. But actually, what I found is that in a society and within particular uh, theological commitments uh, that make a lot of room for post-racialism, even churches that are predominantly Black or or very multiracial uh, fall into the trap of post-racialism. And so what that might look like is the way curriculum is chosen or uh, the kind of stories that young people are allowed to share, uh, the, the experiences that are honored as worthy of exploration, uh, the idea of what, what aspects of identity matter in a Christian community. Now, obviously, racial identity would be the main aspect of identity that gets rejected in a community that is influenced by post-racialism. In society, uh, we see post-racialism in a few different ways. Now, I will say that the thing about post-racialism is that it's tricky. You know, it is, it it is a way of hiding the realities of racism and keeping the realities of racism alive. So it, it's, it's a tricky thing, and it is in some ways a manifestation of racism in a particular form that is needed for racism to survive and thrive. Uh, and um, because of that, it can be tricky to see it, but... Some ways you see it, I mean, perhaps the most obvious way right now is in the resurgence of the phrase, all lives matter. Hmm. Uh, The phrase, all lives matter, is a way to try to mitigate a focus on race. Uh, And, you know, you see it online and people's posts. uh, And, you know, it's kind of surprising that that's still an issue. You would think by now Hmm. that it's clear that. Uh, that while yes, it's it's an it's obviously the case that all lives matter. There is a need 
to pay attention to the way in which race is influencing society, you would think by now that that would be a given, but it's it's not because there's still this sense of hope and longing that if we just act as if race is not a factor, then the realities of racism might just go away. How do you bridge what you're talking about and sort of the the resurgence of this societal choice toward colorblindness? You know, how, how do you how do you bridge the the current these two things together? Um, yeah. Um. Right. So right now, uh, there is, there has been a sort of new awakening for some. You know. Uh, George, the the video of George Floyd's death, the video of that murder, has it it has pushed people to say, well, maybe there's something to this, mm. you know, and it so in in certain ways that's been a really helpful response. In other ways, it can be frustrating because there's so many that are like, wow, like it took it took that. For you to begin right. believing, oh my right. god! Like, right. like really? Like it took you watching an eight-minute and forty-six-second slow, torturous murder for you to begin Ooh. believing the stories that people have been telling for years. And even in the midst of that, we hear ideas like, "Well, it's an anomaly." Like, okay, uh, we believe that story. Because mm. it's all there, but mm. you know you don't really know about all these other ones. You know you still you hear that kind of thing talked about. You hear subtle, subtle mentions of that kind of perspective, but you do also see uh, a sort of collective uprising. I think you know it. One of the things that makes this moment different is that there are so many white communities interested in in being a part of the change. Right. You know, that that's that's what's making this uh a different kind of moment. Hmm. I feel like I'm I'm getting away from your question. No, you're not. <laughs> okay. Um but I think I think your question had to do a little bit with like how the idea of post-racialism and all of that connects with this moment. I think where it can really connect is in our decision making, you know, after this summer. Hmm. Because Right now, everyone is really excited to see some change happen. Of course, we were all just cooped up, you know, for months. And so you don't always know why people are excited to get out and gather. In some ways, people just want to gather, you know, Um, and this is a reason to. And it's like the only thing people are doing right now. So, (laughs) um, so in some ways, this could be a fad for some. Mm -hmm. And people, I suspect, will, you know, not too long from now start asking like, okay, can we, can we move on to something else? Right. Like, can, can we start doing like whatever's next? And you will start to see the influence of post-racialism take place. You know, like what, like, okay, we, we got the chokehold removed, you know, so, so can we be done now? Can we now move on? Mm. And, uh, you know, I think those are moments when you say like, hold on a second, the goal here is not to act as if race doesn't matter and do enough to act as if race doesn't matter. Hmm. The, re- the the goal here is to resist racism. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yes. 
After that, Dr. Williams shared with us a story of young people organizing a protest in his neighborhood. We heard echoes of the importance for young people that Pastor Robinson talked about, and we knew that that was and is important for Dr. Williams, too. You know, you're bringing up the teenagers who organized this protest, and I want to bridge concretely to to teenagers and really to young people. Um, What do you think that post-racialism teaches young people in the church specifically? Mm. Oh my goodness. And what are the consequences of colorblindness Mm -hmm. for the church's work with young people, which obviously connects to not so young people as well? Yeah, it does. Well, First of all, um, like I said, post-racialism is is hard to spot at first, mm-hmm. and so it's it's not necessarily the case that young people are that they necessarily know that it's what's happening in their in their churches or what's happening to them. They know it later when they realize that certain questions that they have have no place in the church. When they begin asking questions about, uh, about race, about, you know, certain experiences that have happened to them and there's not a way to get at a fuller conversation. I, I am, I think what, what, what post-racialism and its anti-virtue of colorblindness tells young people is that their bodies don't matter in Christian discipleship. And it's telling them to check their bodies at the door and come into the church for some sort of, uh, you know, Christian enlightenment. And they can pick their bodies up when they leave the church and go back and figure that stuff out there. Uh, but inside the church, your bodies don't matter, which is obviously very anti-Christian, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. I mean, a at the heart of Christian theology is that the Word became flesh, mm-hmm. and even before that, I mean, that's not the first time that bodies are acknowledged as significant within our faith. I mean, at the very our whole theology of of creation tells us that that our bodies are are good and meant for good things and. It's not that we're meant to walk around hating our bodies or trying to figure out a way to escape. We're called to, to live our lives as, uh, as living sacrifices, not meaning that our lives are a part of honoring who God is. Our lives are a part of a holy way of life and that our lives, our, our bodies are a part of our agency in the world. And so, uh, post-racialism and its anti-virtue of colorblindness is anti-Christian. And it, it tells young people they need to go somewhere else to figure out what to do with the identity for formation aspects that come with their bodies. Here's where we needed conversation with a young pastor. Well, my name is Niato Abraham, and I am a recent graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. I graduated my MDiv. In May of 2020, kind of, and <laughs> I currently live in Madison, Wisconsin, moved here about, I guess now two weeks ago, 
So what I'm doing now is mostly just unpacking, but in a few weeks, I'll be starting my new job as the Associate Director of Campus Ministry at Press House, which is a campus ministry at UW-Madison. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about COVID and racism and this moment of protest that you're experiencing in Madison and this really this culture and community of protest, it sounds like. Um, how, how do these pandemics intersect and bridge to your understanding of what it means to be a pastor in this place and in this time? My sense of calling to ministry really solidified at a particular moment in the history at, of Princeton Theological Seminary. So in my second year of seminary, the, the seminary released its historical audit on slavery, um, which really was just, I mean, it rocked me and it rocked the campus and made my second year of seminary really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also in the midst of discerning kind of my next steps. And at the time when the audit came out, I was pretty intent on my next steps being going into a PhD program so much so that like over the summer between my second and third years, I was, you know, having conversations with people in the program at PTS, um, trying to set up letters of recommendation, having conversations with mentors about what I should and shouldn't do. Um, And then in the sort of moment of divine clarity, I realized that God was not calling me to a PhD program, but that God was calling me towards some form of ministry. And I had no clue what that was, but I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that my next step would be some sort of vocational ministry. Hmm. And so that sense of calling emerged alongside the sort of organizing energy on campus my third year regarding the response to the audit. So that that sort of energy sort of permeated throughout what I was growing to understand as my place in ministry. Um, And so as I'm, you know, moving through the year, I'm coming to see myself not just as someone who's called to ministry, but as someone who's called to a particular sort of ministry that seeks to integrate like discipleship and mentoring with young adults and also the work of anti-racism um, and anti-racism as like a thing that people do was new to me. So I'm learning about this during this time. Um, and all these things are sort of bubbling up underneath the surface for me and kind of coming into more and more clarity. And then the coronavirus breaks out. And in many ways, forced things into sharp relief for me, Um, particularly when it came to searching for a job, I knew that I would need to find a place that institutionally was expressly committed to justice regarding race and sex and gender that that would be really, really important for me. Um, But I also started to realize that everything that I had been doing and everything that I had been learning, all of the skills that I had been developing throughout the past two years of seminary in terms of 
you know, connecting with people and organizing people and having difficult conversations with leadership and trustees at PTS, all of that was like predicated on being able to have a face-to-face relationship with someone. Mm-hmm. And then for the foreseeable future, that was, that's no longer an option. And so I've really, really, really been struggling with and wrestling with like, what does it mean for me as a new pastor, leader in ministry to do anti-racist work without being in proximity to people? Mm -hmm. And I mean, in some ways, like this means like, I don't know if I can go to a protest. Like when we got to Madison, Madison, in terms of its response to the coronavirus, was very different from New Jersey. Hmm. So everyone was out, every, like no one was really wearing masks. And that made me really uncomfortable. Hmm. And I didn't know whether it would be okay for us to be out in like helping clean up after the protest. And we like made that decision to do so, but that was a tough decision to make. Hmm. Um, and similarly, when it comes to, you know, when students come back to campus in the fall, because UW just announced that they'll be having classes on campus, I'm not sure what it means for me to build a relationship with someone who, because of this viral threat that is invisible in many ways, like could pose a threat to me, I could pose a threat to them. And then we're also sort of constantly being surrounded by this threat that is systemic racism. Mm. It sort of be, feels like being pressed in on all sides. And and many moments I found myself feeling paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like, I really, really wish I knew what it meant for me to pastor in this moment or for me to lead in this moment. But the the reality is I have no clue and the moments of you know pastoral work that i've engaged in over the past few months have really been sort of like a stumbling through it and trying to figure it out like preaching online for the first time um i'm leading i'm helping lead an anti-racism workshop in the next four weeks and like that's Trying to design that to take place online is really challenging. And even as I think specifically about my work at Press House, you know, there are students that presumably I may not see in person for months at the beginning of our relationship. Right. And that I don't like I don't know what it means for a pastoral relationship to begin in this moment. Mm-hmm. I have an idea of what it means to maybe sustain one, but to start one, that's a question that I I would love someone to answer for me because I haven't mm-hmm. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm thinking of you, like do you feel like in ministry as a black man in this country right now? Is your do you feel like you're part of Thurman's 
people whose backs are against the wall. And if you do or if you don't, why? And what are the ways that you can talk about this this religion of Jesus that speaks to you to get you out of this moment with faith and with hope? So for a lot of my life, I have been someone who has struggled to um, put words to my emotions. Um, and thank the Lord, uh, I had some friends at seminary who convinced me to go to therapy this year, which was literally life-changing. And so I've learned mm-hmm. some of that emotional language. Um, but I, I have often found myself at a loss for words in this mm-hmm. moment. Um, and that feeling of being pushed up with my back against the wall, having nowhere to go. There, there is a, there is a sense of desperation Mm -hmm. that I sort of carry with me all the time, but I'm not sure, like, it's, it's not clear where it comes from. And I think that's what makes this moment really challenging is that if it was just the coronavirus, Mm. that would be mm-hmm. enough enough right. yep mm-hmm. but there is also this mm-hmm. whole other system that we've been living in and one thing that is especially true for me is that like my breaking point personally um was not the murder of george floyd it was the murder of ahmaud arbery a few weeks before well not even mm-hmm. a few weeks before a few months before mm-hmm. um that one hit me really personally because I had been training for a half marathon. And so I literally saw myself as someone running in the street. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. since, since then that, that feeling of desperation um, of not knowing what to do and yet also feeling like I have to do something. Mm-hmm has just, I mean, it's really weighed on me. And it, it, it changes, it, it's, it's a day-to-day thing. There are days when I wake up and I'm like, I'm ready to take on the world. All you racist people that are on the internet, I'm coming for you. I got receipts. <laughs> right. Like, I will take you out. And then there are other days where I wake up and I just like, I just can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's, it's the sense of like, I don't, for me, I, I, I value clarity. I value logic. If there's a problem, I want to identify the source first because then I, if I know where it's coming from, then I can address it. And for the past three or four months now, everything that I've been feeling, it's like, I don't actually know where this comes from. Mm-hmm. So it makes it makes knowing how to proceed often pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering um, mm-hmm. what you are engaging with or who you are engaging with that's feeding your soul. Well, to be honest, um, for about two months, I wasn't doing anything. When the coronavirus broke out, I was just like, yeah, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Well, no, none of this, no feeding my soul, none of that. So recently I've been reading this book, uh, by Imani Perry called Vexy Thing on gender and liberation. Um, it is like in no way like a, a book about theology. It's like not like really directly connected to my faith in any way. But what it is helping me do is understand sort of, I guess, some of the social structures that are at play here 
And it's also reminding me to not place myself at the center of this story, which I think is really easy for me to do, particularly because I'm a black man and black men are consistently like the, the victims of police brutality whose deaths are most like prominently shown on social media, on the news. Um, and this moment is reminding me of like the struggles of black women, of black queer people, of black trans people. Um, and so in a way that's sort of helping me develop some empathy, which is very easy for me to lose in a moment like this. For you as a black male, when that story has to be decentered in the, and you have to sort of give voice to a lot of other stories, does it take away or add to some of your burden and some of your pain? And and I don't know if I'm asking this right. It's something that my husband and I have been talking about because there, there's a moment here where I want black men to be able to be centered and mm. to to be able to call out their pain and to say, I need prayer for me and my brothers. Uh, there's a way in which I want that for you. I want that for my boys. I want that for my husband. But at the same time, I'm struck by the graciousness and the love of people that you, your aim is to be decentered so that other voices are heard. So that's a very long way of getting at a question about making sure that in your decentering that you are heard and valued and, and loved. That's such a good question. And it's something that I've really been thinking about a lot. Mm-hmm. in many ways that's been driven by my reading um, from this book I was talking about earlier by Imani Perry called Bexy Thing. Um, just reflecting on the ways that I, th- that a moment like this affords me an opportunity, like a, a, an opportunity to share my experience in an unprecedented way. Like the ways in which like, and it's not everyone because, you know, there are, insert your choice word here, people out there who will constantly gaslight and deny your experience. But there is something that is incredible about this moment that like mm-hmm. gives me as a black man the opportunity to say like, this is what it is like for me to live in America. And people say, wow, you're right. We believe you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. And it is also a temptation for me to use that as a means to promote myself and my own interests. Mm-hmm. And so part of this has been, you know, me trying to reckon with some of my own privilege. Like, yes, I am a black man but I'm also like, I come from a middle upper middle-class family. I went to one of the most elite theological institutions in the country and I didn't pay any money to go there. And like, I was able to get a job in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like does being a black man in this country suck often and at times? Yeah. And am I also sitting with, some distinct privileges? Absolutely. And so personally, that means like, I have to wrestle with whether I always need 
to be affirmed publicly in that sense, like whether I always need my story to be the one that's affirmed in order for me to feel good Mm -hmm. or whether I can also celebrate the stories of my people being heard, even if it's not me. We began to hear echoes of the need that young people, really that all people have around space. Space for lament, grief, meaning-making, the kind of meaning-making that Pastor Robinson creates. Or maybe, as Dr. Williams would say, space to share all of the embodied stories that we carry around with us. It struck us that young people are in a moment of actually curating that space, creating that space, or at least Pastor Robinson thinks so. So COVID or crises, I believe, reveal and magnify uh, who we are. And that's true as, as, as the church. So what we're seeing now with all of these protests, uh, it's not the church that is out front. Uh, it's not the church that is organizing. It's not the church that is making these demands and mm-hmm. has been the impetus for some of the change that we've even seen in two weeks. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been youth. A lot of the way that that I see um, people on social media and the news coverage of Minneapolis is foca- focusing on protest. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, about what it has been like to be five blocks from that location. Yeah. And one of the questions that's come up for us in other episodes of this podcast that we're interviewing for is um, this question around what protest is and Mm -hmm. specifically is protest a form? Can protest be viewed as a form of worship? And I'd love for you to reflect on that a little bit. So I have a few, I have a few thoughts. Um, And I think about, again, going back to the old Testament prophets um, and Habakkuk, asking the question, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not listen or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. That oracle, uh, that lament could very well have been written right at the intersection of 38th Street and Chicago Avenue in South Minneapolis on Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a form of lament. And for me, lament is absolutely a part of worship. Mm-hmm. Lament is the soul's yearning for God to make sense out of that which is senseless. And God's people have experienced trauma, have experienced brutality, have experienced dehumanization, uh, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, and so it, it is absolutely right and I believe righteous 
to ask God to help us to make sense of it. And so in my mind, a protest is, uh, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, protest is a language of the unheard. But what people leave out is the next part of that, which he asks the rhetorical question, what are the people saying that America's not hearing? Uh, so protest to me is righteous. Um, and I find it interesting uh, that patriots, self-professed patriots, uh, who love a nation that was born out of protest, all of a sudden have a problem with protest. <laughs> I find that very fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to fellow leaders and ministers right now of all ages, of all Mm. denominations, of all, like, what would you say to people, to clergy leading in this moment right now? Well, that's a, that's a big question. It is. (laughs) So what I would say is in, in these moments of extreme challenge, uh, is to go back to why you said yes. Why did you relent other than the fact that you knew you weren't going to win <laughs> your battle against God in the first place? But aside from that, <laughs> and setting that aside, it was it was a hopeless case. You weren't going to win. So, <laughs> so good. <laughs> aside from that, why did you say yes? Why did you relent? What What is the foundational, fundamental aspect of your of the way you view your call? Uh, Because I believe that whatever that is, that's what God is going to highlight and magnify in this season. Mm. Again, adversity and crisis does not, uh, does not determine who we are. It reveals who we are. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so we're in crisis. We're in crisis. And I think maybe for the first time, I think we all can agree that we're in crisis. Mm. I think we can all agree that the world is on fire. And so as people who are called to address a world that's in chaos and on fire, um, we, we will, are going to have to rely upon that which is fundamental and foundational to who we are and who we imagine ourselves to be as ministers, lay and clergy. Mm-hmm. There, there is something that God has placed in each of us. We all bear the image of God, but God has created, has placed unique gifts within each of us that that quite frankly cannot and cannot necessarily be used in times uh, of of sunshine and roses. Mm-hmm. And I think back to uh, to Esther and Mordecai's conversation mm. and being called for such a time as this. Everything that we've done in ministry, every decision we've made, every prayer we've prayed, every Bible study we've attended and taught, every sermon we've preached, I believe has been in preparation for such a time as this. Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. You can learn more about Princeton Theological Seminary at ptsem.edu.
You can learn more about Dr. Montague Williams at pointloma.edu and find his forthcoming book, Church in Color, available for pre-order on Amazon. You can learn more about Press House and Ni Otto Abrahams at presshouse.org. That is P-R-E-S-H-O-U-S-E dot org, O-R-G. 